0: Welcome back to the Royal Studies Podcast. I'm delighted to say we've got a second kind of installment of Coronation episodes here. Today, we're joined by Dr. Alice Hunt. She's an associate professor at the University of Southampton. Her research interests include early modern and modern monarchy, ritual, ceremonial, and queenship, as well as the period of the English Republic. So we'll be drawing on a lot of those strands in our talk today. She's currently completing a book on the English Republic and Oliver Cromwell. And this research was supported by a Leverhulme Research... Research Fellowship, and the book, England's Republic, The Lost Decade, 1649 to 1660, will be published by Faber and Faber, so keep your eye out for that. She's also a co-investigator on a major AHRC research project, which is very timely at the moment, Uh, the visible crown, Elizabeth II and the Caribbean. So looking at Elizabeth II's reign and the relationship between the crown and the islands of the Caribbean uh, that were part of the Commonwealth nations. So that's uh, that's working together with colleagues at City, UCL and the University of West Indies. So that's looking at the cultural and political significance of uh, the late Queen Elizabeth II and the British monarchy in all of the areas where the British mark is still head of state or has until recently been head of state. So it's a very active question at the moment. It's a very exciting area to be looking at. So as we've established, um, Dr. Alice Hunt is an expert on queenship and monarchy and also coronations. So you might be familiar with her Tudor Queenships, um, a volume that she co-edited with uh, Anna Whitelock. So you might also be familiar with her work on coronations. So her book, The Drama of Coronations, is what we're really going to be focusing on today because it brings us right into the conversation we're currently having about monarchy, which is the upcoming coronation of King Charles III. So, Alice, in your book on the drama of coronation, you focus particularly on the 16th century, so you've looked at the coronation of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, and Boleyn's coronation, and Henry's children, uh, Edward VI, and obviously the Tudor queens, Mary and Elizabeth I. So, what's particularly interesting about this kind of group of coronation ceremonies? Well, it's kind of unusual that within 50 years there
1: were five coronations. I mean, if you think we haven't seen a coronation um since 1953. Um, and then there were five, all in one go. And none of them were particularly straightforward. Or the first was kind of straightforward, Henry Henry VI. Um, and then after that, none of the none of the ceremonies were 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 quite so um settled. Um, we've got a coronation of um, a mistress, the second wife, and Boleyn, very provocative. Um and uh, uh, not a quite divisive uh, ceremony. Then There was then a coronation of um, a little boy, Edward VI, and then the first ever coronation of a queen regnant with Mary I, um, and then followed by Elizabeth I in 1559. We move from a kind of medieval ceremony, a Catholic ceremony um, in Henry VIII in 1509 to 50 years later, a ceremony that's partly in English, that's a little bit confused with Elizabeth I. How Protestant is she? How Protestant could this ceremony be? Um, so over a very short period of time, the ceremony has come, come under intense pressure. And this is also a time when ceremonies were being scrutinized um, by uh, you know keen, keen reformers, but also the monarchy had changed. Um, Henry VIII was not crowned as supreme head of the Church of England, um, his son Edward VI was, um, and so was his daughter Mary, which she couldn't really um, undo it in time. So huge changes in a very short period of time that affected the ceremony.
0: Yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, thinking about it, you know, I think part of the reason why there's been so much excitement about this particular coronation is because there has been such a gap between, you know, 1953 and now. So 70 years without a coronation, whereas, as you rightly noted, we had this period at the beginning of the 16th century where there's a seems to be, it must have felt almost like constant coronations uh, with so many happening within such a short span. So reflecting back on kind of um, what you learned in terms of scrutinizing those 16th century coronation rituals, Rituals and, and and thinking more broadly about them what do you think is the most important element I know there's all of these different there's the six different elements of the coronation but what do you think is the most important or significant kind of element or moment in the coronation rituals
1: yeah you're right there I mean they're really composite ceremonies so many different things happening it's trying to kind of do lots of things in one in one space um I think the most important element is the anointing um and it, it is one of the rituals that has also um caused a little bit of conflict between kind of church and, and monarch. You know, what exactly is the anointing and what exactly is happening to the monarch and does it and does it change them? And kings and queens have always worried about this a bit. And I mean, Henry III um kind of asked, you know, what 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 does it turn me into? You know, how how sacred am I? Um what can i do with, with once i'm anointed as if you know they they are it's kind of priestly the office so i think it's really it's really important because it's 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 still in the ceremony today and it really underpins the fact that you know when monarchy turned from being something that was chosen or elected um into something that is a, a, into a religious office into an office that is legitimized by god um, kind of made by God. It's an it's an imitation of the biblical kings that the monarchs are are anointed. Um, so this th- th- this this really kind of underpins what we understand kingship to be in the 16th century, and that has then had to be reinterpreted since, um, as our understanding of kingship might change from that.
0: Now, that's really interesting. I think it's really interesting that you chose that for two reasons. One, because that is also uh, what Jose Manuel Cerda, who's our other guest, Mm -hmm. um, chose. He he, exactly the same thing for different reasons. But again, the anointing was definitely he was very clear that was his favorite or most important element, if Mm -hmm. you like. Um, Mm -hmm. But also because I think in today's ceremony with the ceremony of King Charles III, That's one of the elements that certainly in like recent kind of media discussions, there seems to be the most almost kind of consternation about is that there is this kind of very sacred element, this this kind of mystic moment where the monarch is hidden from view and anointed, which is really a vital element of of the British uh, coronation ceremony, which doesn't happen in the more kind of secularized kind of affirmation kind of ceremonies of the other European monarchies have Mm -hmm. and so it is this really interesting element um but yeah i I, like i said i think it's really interesting that you both zeroed right in on that as being this is this is the moment (laughs) i think i think it it
1: it it probably is the the part that those participating in the ceremony would say as well Mm -hmm. you know the dean of Westminster, the archbishop of canterbury i'm sure they would say that at at its heart this is an anointing ceremony um, yes, it's an investiture. Yes, it's an oath-taking as well. But it is—it is an anointing ceremony. And I think it'd be interesting to know, you know, whether for Charles III, is this—is this the most important bit? Certainly for Elizabeth II, it was considered so solemn and sacred that she didn't want this bit to be shown on camera. Um, so yeah I, I, I think it it, it is it, it is this element of magic that's mm. that's still that's still
0: there um both wonderful and problematic. Definitely, definitely. So thinking about kind of the period that you were studying um, and, and and everything that's happening there, obviously we've got the Reformation, as you know, to the advent of regnant queens. Um, what do you think were there what were the most significant changes that happened in the period that you were looking at? Or, or did it remain, you know, largely unchanged, even with those massive kind of, you know, changes happening around coronation?
1: Yeah, well, this is really what I was interested in looking at, you know, how did it, It because on, at a kind of first glance, you'd think, oh, it didn't change. You know, it, it, it survived. And I think that is a story we t- still tell ourselves. Oh, it hasn't changed. This is a ritual that goes back thousand years. Um isn't that great this so stable traditional we're kind of re re resurrecting reinventing or not reinventing actually just kind of reviving these ceremonies um that we that have existed for years but actually it did things did change um they, and often they're very small and subtle but they do they do I mean, and that's always been the trick, you know. How can you make it look the same and therefore feel legitimate? You can't completely make up a ceremony, and obviously, it just looks like theatre. It's got it's got to have um something that is outside of time in that way. Um, so you can make little changes. Um, so through through the period that I looked at, interesting innovation that uh, Anne Boleyn's coronation, uh, coronation of a queen consort, Sir Edward's crown shouldn't have been there, didn't need to be there. But was there, and she was crowned with it, um, which uh, is is startling, really, um, for a queen consort. It kind of brought, brings Henry VIII into the ceremony, even even though this wasn't his coronation. It it really kind of focused the 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 minds on on that symbol of kingship um, and her association with that. Um, the coronation of Edward VI was much shorter, and often it's said this is because he was a little boy um that may well be but actually this ceremony is really significant for um the first one to be in the context of the new supremacy and Mm -hmm. with the kind of the reformation that um cranmer was was getting going with and he he was the archbishop who crowned edward vi so they took away elements from the recognition in that ceremony to make it more that he there was no kind of element of election or consent but that he was king um had been king from the minute henry the eighth died um that he was also the supreme head of the church of england even though he was a minor and there would be a protector or protector he um he he was supreme head so they they, they brought that in um his oath uh was slightly slightly amended too um and the whole ceremony i think for edward vi is the first time we see ceremony move from it, it, it wanting to be something that confirmed power that was already there and that, that that was its kind of legitimizing function as opposed to conferring power um so any sense that this was a um a, an efficacious ceremony was uh, was slightly reduced. So ceremony takes on a, a different kind of function for Edward VI, um, and then gradually it becomes a, a kind of Protestant ceremony. Um, certainly by James I in sixteen o three, he his oath, um, the religion of the gospel, the Protestant faith is is articulated. Possibly was. Elizabeth I in 1559 but we can't be completely sure, we don't have the text of the oath that she that she swore. Um, So these were really quite big changes when you look back at them even though perhaps at the time they might not have been noticed or it's just a kind of line here and there that someone's decided to do but they're always being um, adapted and rewritten and of course it was then translated, it used to be in Latin. and it wasn't translated until the coronation of James the First in 1603. Um, so at that point, the language changed because they they adapted the translation.
0: No, really, really interesting to kind of think, like you said, is it, it, is getting that balance right between you know subtle shifts and changes and adaptations that are necessary versus changing it so much that it loses its legitimizing factor, that 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 continuity, that tradition with the past, that that each monarch is kind of building on that line that came before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: some changes are pragmatic,
0: um,
1: and some changes are perhaps you know more more fraught and more wrangled over. Um, you know what what would be the right thing to do, um, and some are accidents. Things happen, and then that becomes a precedent. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so they're 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 kind of messy affairs sometimes.
0: Yeah, and precedent's important. Monarchy kind of runs on tradition and precedent, doesn't it? So yeah, you can make little change and all of a sudden that's the way we do things. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just pretend it's always been that way. Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, definitely. So, out of the the coronations that you looked at, or, or even maybe there's another one that's kind of outside the, the the particular book that that you you did at the beginning of the 16th century. Is there a coronation that really stands out as being the most interesting or, or the most significant? Is there one that you really think? Oh, yes, this is this is a really interesting coronation.
1: Well, my favorite coronation, um, and it is from from the period that I looked at, and partly because it's informed all my work since, was Mary the First's coronation in 1553. It's the coronation of the first queen regnant. And there are two things that I I think are really interesting about this ceremony. Um, The first was there was a a bit of, there was kind of anxiety around her legitimacy, of course, um, as the daughter of of Catherine of Aragon. And because of this, there was a proposal to perhaps um, invert the traditional order of coronation and then the opening of Parliament, they thought well perhaps we could have Parliament first and deal with her kind of illegitimacy in Parliament and then she could be crowned after that. Seemingly, you know, okay maybe that could happen, this really was not considered a good idea and she's advised against it. Um, And this is really because she perhaps quite rightly saw that she, she should be crowned first and then she as the Queen opens Parliament Parliament shouldn't be able to declare her queen. This would be a parliamentary queenship, a parliamentary monarchy and, and or a kind of almost a kind of constitutional monarchy that we might we might see. Um, so she rejected that. But it's really interesting nonetheless that there was this idea that they could do this, um, and that perhaps they might even try and pass, for, you know. Try and as she used the word, or uh, uh, one of her advisors said, she might be bridled by this parliament. They might try and kind of hedge hedge her in in certain ways before she was then crowned. Um, but that I think is a really interesting moment for them, kind of re rethinking um, what monarchy, what the relationship between monarchy and parliament could be. Uh, and the second thing I think is really interesting about Mary's coronation is that it was just like a man's, and um, for all we talk about gender and the uh the kind of problem female rule or uh, and that both she and then elizabeth I kind of had to counter those kind of anxieties um actually the coronation followed the form of for a king there is no text for the coronation of a queen regnant the the libera Regalis, the kind of beautiful kind of coronation book that is um, a kind of treasured item in Westminster Abbey has details what should happen for the coronation of a queen consort, but not for a queen regnant. Um, so there was no precedent for crowning a, a queen. Um, so they crowned her like a man, they crowned her like a king. Even though some of the reports are a bit uh, unsure, they get things a bit wrong. Um, you know, did she, was she holding? the one the rod which would be for a queen consort as opposed to the uh, scepter and and the orb but i think they're just muddled <laughs> actually she 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 was she was crowned like her father and her brother had been
0: No, that's really interesting because, like you said, it's that whole kind of body politic, body natural kind of side of things. You know, if anything, the coronation is really about the body politic, isn't it? The the gender of the the office holder is less important than than the fact that they are sovereign or they're being acknowledged as sovereign, which is kind of genderless. So, Yeah. yeah, really interesting. Really, really interesting. Right. Well, thinking about the coronation that is coming or about to happen, how do you think the coronation of King Charles III is going to be similar and different to the 16th century consorts and kings that you looked at? I mean, would they look at the coronation of King Charles and Queen Camilla and say, I don't recognize <laughs> that at all? Is it, is it so different from Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, for example? Or do you think they'd go, oh, right, yeah, okay. I, you know, I, I recognize this.
1: There are many elements that are similar and familiar. Um, Westminster Abbey, the coronation chair, are the kind of props the Archbishop of Canterbury the Dean of Westminster the regalia it's not the same regalia but it's um in imitation of the the medieval regalia perhaps with its own 17th century changes but you know recognizable crown might be slightly different but there is a crown and the scepter and the orb and the robes um so the the kind of the costumes and the props, very familiar. Uh, the form, very, very familiar, processing up to the abbey, the recognition shown around all four sides. The wording has changed um, slightly, but it still has the same, it's still fulfilling a similar function. You know, this is the this this is the undoubted heir or the undoubted king, king, they will say will you will you serve will you will you do will you pay homage yes so that kind of acclamation um then the oath then the anointing then the investiture the kind of dressing up um then the then the enthroning uh you know the crown and then led up to the throne um on the on the kind of little stage. Um homage, although they probably won't do that actually for Charles the third, and they're going to take that away, so that will be different um and then uh it kind of finishes as kind of communion um now they might they are going to shorten the service, so there will be things that are are going to that won't, won't be there and as always with these coronations, it's about the context and it's a combination of what it, it is in in seemingly a kind of a static form even though that has changed over time but it's that ritual that's played out in a particular context by particular people at a particular time that also adds a great deal to, to what that ceremony is um, so that that the the, the differences will, will, will be in this kind of live performance
0: Thanks so much to Dr. Alice Hunt for coming on today to speak to us about coronations. So we wait with bated breath to see how the coronation of King Charles III will live up to the traditions of the medieval and early modern uh, English monarchy that it's building on. And um, thank you again for coming on and sharing your expertise of coronations with us, Alice.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ellie, really enjoyed it.